Hey team, welcome to episode 93 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. For various reasons, buyers and sellers feel the need to rush through various pieces of their dental transition sometimes. Maybe they feel like they'll miss out on a great deal. Maybe they want to move on to the next chapter of their career. Regardless of the reason, speeding through the process can compromise the overall transition and hinder you from achieving your goals on both sides. Today, we're going to talk about some tips on how to slow down, ensure you're treating each transition phase with diligence, and making sure you're not missing anything. Joining me on today's episode is NDP's very own Bridget Schwebke. She is our head of consulting and has been on our team for four years, guiding clients through the ins and outs of their transition. Bridget brings a unique background to the team. She was a dental hygienist for eight years before transitioning into accounting, and she is just a wealth of knowledge for us, and we are so lucky. Bridget, thank you for being here in the podcast booth with me. Thank you for having me. Much better than talking to Mr. Loretto, but don't tell him, okay, guys? A bit different role, but I'm excited to be here. Well, today, you know, I think we've both experienced this in dealing with clients where we have, you know, we have these initial calls and we learn in those initial calls that they've been talking to the seller for months or they've already, you know, requested information and maybe done their own diligence because they've listened to the podcast and are trying to do their own their own lead work. Or, you know, they've been in the practice for 5, 10, 15 years, or they're just really anxious, right? Like they haven't owned, they know they want to, and now they just want to get there as fast as they can. You know, when I say that, right, like I know I have an initial example that pops into my head the moment I think about people rushing through this process. What do you think about first? I think everybody operates at a different pace. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand the eagerness and I understand the excitement of becoming an owner. I think you can never... Well, I shouldn't say never. You can do too much diligence to some extent. <laughs> Paralysis by analysis. But I think it is important. There is a process that is generally followed. Understanding expectations from both sides is super important here, especially from the seller's side. Rushing through the process and missing things that maybe come up after we look at the numbers or further into the process. And then having to go back, especially if they're material pieces, really runs the risk of of ruining the goodwill, of upsetting a seller, or it could drag the process on even further, right? Mm-hmm. And hey, oh, I didn't think about this, or I should have asked for this earlier and I didn't. And deal fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. I think we've seen it time and time again. Not to say that, hey, let's rush through this so we don't get to that point, but there is typically in transitions, there is typically kind of a flow to the process. And too fast, too slow, both can be detrimental in, in one way or another, but too fast can lead to too slow, Yeah, if it makes sense. Yeah. So I think really just keeping that goodwill in the transition and making sure we understand expectations and overall communication is super important. So I totally agree. So I kind of came up with a list of what I feel like are the main categories of rushing. So I want to go through those if you don't mind. And I think the first one that we see the most often during these initial calls, oftentimes before they've engaged with us or soon after, right, is a buyer rushing through their site visit or a letter of intent because they feel kind of pressure to put one out there. They feel pressured, you know, this is whoever, whatever broker is listing this practice, or if you're a seller listening and you are listing your practice, um, kind of forcing buyers to do that really quickly. Right. What are some things that can go wrong if we rush through that, you know, diligent site visit or we, we rush to put a letter of intent in the hands of a seller too quickly? I think from a site visit standpoint, there's a lot of things that we're looking at. Equipment, flow of the office, right? For Is there a room for presenting treatment, right? Is there a separate space for office staff? Is there a separate sterilization? 
We've had a practice recently where they share a sterilization in radiograph space with a neighboring practice, right? And paying attention to those details is super important and understanding just how a practice flows, what the space presents from an opportunity standpoint, is there space that is there but isn't built out yet, and just kind of those pieces mm-hmm. all around. From a letter of intent standpoint, <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> I think some of the big ones that stick out, I mean, a letter of intent can look a million different ways, right? It can be overly simplified and it can honestly be overcomplicated in some ways. Mm-hmm. It does, can simplify the process down the road if we address some of the bigger building blocks. I know in previous episodes we said, hey, look, these are the things we prefer to see in a letter of intent. If they're not there, does that mean you rushed and didn't cover all the pieces? No, but we do want to make sure the big pieces are there and the protections are there. And by protections, most letter of intents are not binding, but we want to see exclusivity for a period of time. We want you to have the opportunity to do your diligence. If you've put forth earnest money or are being asked to, what happens if this doesn't work out? How do I get that back? Do I get this back? And I think from a seller, from a work back standpoint, is a seller working back? What are the expectations there? So letter of intents, while they do not have to be overly detailed, can help eliminate frustration and miscommunication down the road if we establish some of those things. And rushing through that process may not afford us the ability to do that on the front end. And so I think it is critical that we make sure early on we're trying to address those pieces if we don't know them yet. Yeah, and I think we've heard from buyers who have basically said, hey, like, you know, the the broker told me to sign this but told me it wasn't binding, and so their assumption is I can negotiate this price. I don't have to agree to this. But what we find is that later down the road, that broker is saying, or that seller, their expectations, right? Even if the broker didn't communicate this, the seller's expectation is you put forth an intent right. to offer for my practice, and now you're taking it back. Right. And even if they understand that maybe you didn't do your diligence or that's what their broker wanted you to do, it still is hard to go back in time and do those things and, and get them to like understand that. So it's all about expectation setting up front. I think you make a great point about they can be really simple and that can be on purpose. We've seen lots of letter of intents where people come to us and say, hey, I have to sign this. And we're like, well, let me see it. And you look at it and you're like, it doesn't say the price, it doesn't say the closing date. <laughs> what are we signing? <laughs> I don't know why we have to sign this, but go go for it. It's yeah. fine. But understanding that I think is really important. So I think that's 100% an important component. I think on the site visit thing, you mentioned an example about the shared space. I don't think it's something that sellers are like trying to hide. I think it's no. just so obvious to them that they don't think to mention it correct when it's really kind of a critical thing for buyers to know like correct oh i've got to get like this matters to me in in a million different ways when i'm doing this transition so i think that's really important correct so let's talk about rushing through a chart audit i know it's an important part we get asked about chart audits from buyers you know i have my perspective but i'd love to hear your perspective on the chart audit and why we don't rush through it i guess i should say (laughs) not just generally the chart audit I think, you know, a chart audit can mean a lot of things to a lot of docs, and they could be going in, like you said, for different reasons. Maybe they're determining inactive to active ratio and, and looking at those pieces of it. Maybe they're trying to figure out age composition mm-hmm. of, of, this, of the patient base, it's, patient base itself. I think the importance of a chart audit or the crux of what you're hopefully looking for is ultimately what is the treatment philosophy of this seller? What am I buying, right? Am I buying more conservative practice maybe where they're – when I look at these, right, I see undiagnosed treatment. Maybe the seller says, hey, we're going to watch it. And maybe they've been watching it for three years. Mm-hmm. We don't know that, right, from looking at the chart, without looking through the notes. But maybe I'm more aggressive and I say, hey, earlier treatment, smaller treatment, right? And so I think comparing what exists to what your philosophy is, 
And in all sincerity, if there's existing work that the seller has completed, especially in recent years, what's it look like, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what are you inheriting? Because retreatment or potential for issues, if it looks like recurrent decay and it's frequent, what does that look like? Because those are all going to be things that are yours, Mm -hmm. right, in the near future. And so I think really just understanding if things have been diagnosed and untreated or if they've been untreated and there's opportunity and just what are you buying, right, from a treatment standpoint is, is the goal. Remind listeners retreatment because mm-hmm. this kind of goes back to our first point, which was letter of intent. Let's right. talk about retreatment. Like what when you say retreatment, just remind listeners what that means and why it's important in a transition. Sure. So when you inherit patients, right? When I'm buying these patients, anything retreatment wise, typically in an agreement, a seller would be responsible potentially for retreatment with for X amount of time post close. Oftentimes we see twelve well, months mm-hmm. on average. How that's handled really comes down to one. Has it been determined that there is a need, right? We're well aware patient noncompliance is, yeah, not a reason. Avoids any need for retreatment. If you have this beautiful crown in your tooth, but your hygiene is awful and you haven't showed up for your last three hygiene appointments, it can be hard to say that was the doctor's fault, right? But I think what is important is if you have a bunch of patients who maybe had a couple fillings placed within six months of close or in a few months of close, and then you're the new owner and they come in and they say, this has never been right, I don't like it, it hurts, or you take an x-ray and there's recurrent, appears to be recurrent, or maybe it just wasn't taken care of the first time, right? Mm -hmm. You're in a situation and it's, hey, I have to do what's in the best interest of this patient. If I didn't do this work, then there's a process. We gotta notify the seller. We've gotta agree that retreatment is needed. And at that point you decide, am I gonna do it or is the seller gonna do it? Ultimately there's a cost, right? Mm -hmm. There's a cost for that. There's chair time, there's staff time, there's supplies. And so, or labs, depending on what it is that's being done. And so there are potentially bigger financial implications depending on what you see when you do this chart audit. And so when we kind of say, hey, I'm not saying you have to grade the seller's work, but look at what you're taking on, right? So fortunately, well, it doesn't come back to us (laughs) if it is an issue, but we haven't heard of this being a big issue, but it can be. Yeah, and I think, and I think too, like I think these two things go together because if you rush through the letter of intent and don't talk about retreatment, that can come back because remember that letter of intent is a structure for your legal mm-hmm. agreements down the road, right? So if you don't talk about it and you've done a chart audit and you see, you know, that hey, this is often this is something that's happening, it doesn't mean again. I I always say there's like very few red flags in a transition. There's a lot of yellow. You know, a yellow flag is, okay, well, I know this is a potential issue. I'm going to do a chart audit. I'm going to make sure my my retreatment language is strong. Yeah. I'm going to protect myself because if there's enough pros and that's the one con, okay, well, then I'm prepared going into it. Right. You rush through the, the LOI. You don't include anything. You don't do a chart audit because you're whatever reason you, you can come up with. Now, post-close, you were hit with the surprise versus being educated and prepared for what was coming and having language that will like walk you through that. You right. know, And I think that's just one example of a number of things that we could talk about here, but I think it's an important component of how those things kind of flow together. You know, site visits, you could talk about equipment, you know, like don't just walk through and look at the equipment, walk through and actually turn the equipment on, you right. know, like don't just assume it works, you know, have an inspector come out and kind of walk through it. So like all those pieces are you're not doubting the seller. You're not trying to catch them in something. You're just being educated about what you're buying. No different than if you bought a home and did a home inspection. How many times do we see those inspector reports? We both (laughs) bought houses recently Mm. and um, super special time. Water in the basement, (laughs) six months after it closed. No, just kidding. But you see those inspection reports if you've bought it, if you're listening and you bought a home, 
that inspector might say like five or six pages and you read through them and you're like, okay, like don't care, don't care, really care, don't care, you know, and they're, again, you're just doing your diligence. Okay. So the next two are a little more fun. They're a little uh, fun from a sick perspective in our world, but these are pieces where it's a little further down. You have your letter of intent. You've done some diligence. You're working through agreements, so like formal legal docs. Talk to me about, we do shockingly have people who come to us who either already have legal docs drafted and they have not committed to buying the practice or they've committed way early. You know, we're late to the game or unfortunately, sometimes they've already signed legal documents right. by the time they get to us. Give me some examples of that because that is a prime example of rushing to the end um, without knowing where you're going. Yeah. There are a lot of different examples here. I think first and foremost, if you're coming to us with documents that are already signed, just from a general protection and legal standpoint, there are components that are in 100% of the agreements that we we deal with. Um, From a representation and warranty standpoint, meaning there are things in a sale that both a buyer and a seller have to say are true, yep. right? I have paid all my taxes. I have filed my taxes on on time every mm-hmm. year. I have a license. I have a license, correct. I am following it. compliance for OSHA and all of these pieces, mm-hmm. right? And those are there to protect both parties because you can't diligence everything. It's, it's not physically possible. So there is a level of me as a seller saying, yes, my financials, to the best of my knowledge, are true mm-hmm. and correct. In contingencies, right? There are things in a sale that up until the end can get you out of it, right? Nobody's, hopefully, nobody's looking for that to happen, but the sale is not final until I've paid you. The sale is not final until I have a signed lease or I have an assignment of this lease. Because what if we have a difficult landlord who is not being cooperative for whatever reason and we can't come to an agreement? We are done on the other's piece of this, but I can't practice here if I don't have a space to practice in. So there are protections contingency-wise, representations-wise that need to be in these agreements. And then clearly back to the building blocks that we discussed in the letter of intent. If we rush through that process, it's not there then, and then, and or maybe they are there, but they're not here, or for whatever reason they're not here, that's what makes the deal, right? Yeah. And in conjunction with the legal jargon. So how is retreatment going to be handled? If it's not stated... I don't know what the default is. It's going to be up to the interpretation of, of the attorney or the judge who's, who's weighing in on it. But my guess is it's probably not going to be in your favor. And right? you don't want to go to that point. Correct. Yeah. How are disputes handled? If we have a difference of opinion when it comes to retreatment or something like that, agreements outline all of those pieces. There are a lot of components, especially if you come to us and you say, hey, I'm buying this practice. This is what I want to do. Or maybe you've agreed to something, whether it's missing, maybe the seller's work pack isn't there. Or if it is and it's more broad or wild yep. or you're like, does this make sense? Maybe maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's hard to say. Tax allocation, non-competes, all of those are pieces that should be there. Most of the time they are, but we have seen on rare occasion where it is a bare bones document and it's, I don't know, really know what you're buying mm-hmm. from what you've shown me, right? Yeah, and we've had clients, and, and I know that we've struggled sometimes, but we've had clients who have, because the seller, usually we're representing the buyer and the seller, they don't want to invest in the process. Mm-hmm. And so they have their brother or their uncle or their contract Mm -hmm. attorney draft up like a basic purchase and sale agreement that is not familiar with dentistry. Right. And they say, Hey, I've already got this. This will save us both a bunch of money. 
you know, and if it's a four page document as a buyer and you read through and you're like, yep, this seems real straightforward, real <laughs> simple. Let's go ahead and sign that. And then when we get involved, we're like, it doesn't say what you're buying. It doesn't say what you're allowed to buy. Is it an asset sale? Is it a stock sale? It looks right. like it's a stock sale. Did you know it was a stock sale? Nope. Didn't know it was a stock sale. There's nothing that talks about accounts receivable or prepaids or the things you mentioned, tax allocation, non-compete. And that's a problem for you, but more than likely, it's a problem for the bank that you're going to have to go get money right. from, right? And so when we get involved, we have to be the bad guys that say, yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> did you know? Because you can't go get lending without those things, right? And so then we have to kind of go back to that seller, and that brings it all the way back to that first thing you talked about, which is if we rush through the beginning or we rush through one of these pieces and then we have to revert and go all the way back, yeah, we're losing goodwill. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that fatigue that you mentioned comes in. And that's where we feel bad because we're kind of rocking the boat, which we never want to do. But we're rocking the boat because it's better for you as a buyer and you as a seller. Right. Like a lot of these protections protect you as a seller so that the buyer can't come back and say, you told me this. Right. Nope, I didn't because the document says what we've agreed upon. So I think that's really important. And again, like... I just ask you, if you're listening to this, please don't ever feel the need to sign a legal document without having someone look at it. Like, let's all just realize that we are only as good as what we do and we're not experts in everything. Let's let an attorney look at it, um, if not us. So, okay. Now, this we kind of focus more on these like straight buyouts, partnerships, whole nother ballgame. What are some things in partnership that you see people rush through that uh, we feel like are just kind of like fatal mistakes? I think the biggest thing before the legalities, the operational aspect of how we're going to run it is just, do I want to be your partner? <laughs> Amen. I don't necessarily have to love you to be your partner, but I've, I've got to like you enough to be willing to deal with you yep. for potentially long-term, right? And that matters. How is this a long-term or a short-term gig, right? There, I can look past some things depending on the intended tenure of our partnership. But ultimately, what is my relationship with you? What has your relationship been with partners past? If that's existed, have there been previous falling outs? Have people left? What is our relationship like right now? Have you kind of taken me under your wing? Have you, you know, made me feel like I am headed that direction or like that is the intent, right? And I think we see people come to us in all different stages of this kind of courtship. But first and foremost, do I like you? Do I respect you? Do I trust you? Mm-hmm. I'm marrying you from a financial standpoint, from a business standpoint. You are going to have the authority to significantly impact a business that I am going to be part owner in. That's a big deal. I've got to trust that you are going to have the greater interest of our business and me at the forefront, right? I think it's important. You and I talked to a partnership recently that we had a previous relationship with. And I'll be honest that both of us were a little hesitant to have the conversation we had because the last time we worked with this particular group, I don't know, we just didn't get like the best vibes, maybe we should say. Um, Not all parties were like jiving on the same track. Is that fair? No, I, yeah. There were conflicting interests and... There was a lot of communication to us and with us, but not with each other. Correct. And that was uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it was like, hey. <laughs> yeah. You're married. <laughs> yeah. You're married. You Talk. have to do that. And then when we got on the phone with him this time, and one of the partners had departed, and we left the call thinking, like, we say this all the time, and we know it, that, like, finding the right person and the communication between partners is so mm-hmm. important. But it just, it was a really great example of how toxic one person can be and can really kind of deflate 
the entire group. And, you know, it's incredible practice, like good opportunity. But, you know, the relationships between the partners, I think, were really important. And they were really focused on finding the right person right. to become the next partner because of that experience. So I, I think you're completely on target with, with that piece of it. And I'll also add, let's just not go to dinner, or get to know the person. Let's go to dinner and get to know their spouse and how they act outside of the office. I mean, you know, you're right. You don't have to love them. You don't have to want to hang out with them every Friday, but you do have to be able to communicate and understand kind of all the factors that influence who they are so that you can kind of know what's going to be pushing and pulling on them as, as they're your partner. What about from a structural standpoint? I know a lot of the focus we talk about is price and the actual purchase, but in a partnership, there's this whole other beast of a thing called the <laughs> operating agreement, partnership agreement. Yeah. What matters in that and what should listeners kind of think about if they're entering a partnership that is either brand new or maybe an existing partnership? I think if it's an existing partnership, that can bring a whole other set of issues or benefits, right? I mean, if it's already established, you like what you see, fantastic. I think understanding what exists and what you're buying is super buying into is super important mm-hmm. with an existing partnership. Understanding how they're structured, how that fits into your financial plan and your goals long term and your ability to tax plan based on what their tax structure is is super important. If it's not ideal, their openness or willingness to maybe explore alternative, maybe more beneficial structures. And then ultimately, whether new or established partnership, I need to understand how are we splitting money? How are you making decisions? What happens in the event of retirement, disability, all of those pieces, death, disability, disagreement, right? Mm -hmm. Those kind of big, the big pieces of a partnership, but then operationally, like what are we going to do? How are we going to organize this? How, what's the accounting like? How am I getting paid? What's this mean for me? That matters, Mm -hmm. right? It matters just as much, if not more than what I'm paying you. More, Um, (laughs) yeah. I mean, how many times do we have people come in and we're like, that's a great price what have you talked about how to split money or and they're like no conversation whatsoever and i'm like well then i can't tell you to do this or not to do this or it's a don't mess it up or it's a walk away because i don't know what the, i mean this that's a 20-year relationship versus a one-time transaction it is and i can think of one off the top of my head where and this was a new partnership right seller potentially bringing on his associate and price was fine but he wasn't willing how they were going to split money and the what they had proposed as long as they perfectly produced equally, right, Mm -hmm. was fine. But if it ever differed from that, it was wildly unfavorable to the person, you know, to one or the other. And so just looking at those pieces and in negotiating those things or talking about those things, maybe you uncover more of the first part of what we talked about, which was, Mm -hmm. is this a person I really want to get into business with, right? Partnership sounds great to a single doc who is at his max capacity and is just burnt out and needs to offload some of this, right? I'm sick of the staff part. I want help. I want these things. And they want the help. Mm-hmm. But then we really find out, but I don't want to give up the authority and the decision-making. And that matters, yeah. right? That To most, there are some buyers who are willing maybe to, to overlook some of that <laughs> despite our recommendation. But, I mean, no two partnerships look the same, right? And I think that's important, right? Well, the things we tell you to look for and the things we say, hey, we prefer to see this, that doesn't mean it has to work that way. And it doesn't mean that it has to be what you want, right? Because we've had plenty of buyers come buy into partnerships and it is not at all where well, we, we would, would say, structure. correct. Yeah. But there are other reasons for them that it makes sense and it works. And maybe it's a short-term plan to a long-term solution, like short-term solution to a long-term plan, right? Yeah. And I think that what you said is really true because I do think that part of this, if you're a seller listening, is what are your goals? 
Like, yeah. what do you want? And don't rush into the decision to bring on an associate or add a partner to your practice if you're not ready to like make less money eventually probably put in the work to mentor an associate you know you can't expect most associates don't jump into a practice and double it you know what i mean without some hand holding and some mentorship especially people who are straight out of school and partnerships again require all the front end work if you're a person who never wants to give up control and you're imp- it's important for you to always have 51% forever let's rethink what we're doing you know like <laughs> let's think other you. options we're really you know that's great and it's fine it's not it's not a judgment it's a are you making the best decision or are you rushing into something because you're trying to solve something else and this is just the easiest solution right. you can kind of come to or the only solution you know about? Let's look at other options. So 100%, I think that's very fair. I agree with you. Partnerships are their own ball game, and We could probably do a whole episode of things not to rush into in a partnership. Jot that down, producer Joellen. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that no matter where you are in the process, if you're considering a transition, I mean, I think... Both of us would encourage anyone listening to just kind of move forward with intention, practice diligence. I mean, what do you say? Um, analysis by analysis. Yes, yes, paralysis by analysis. I mean, I think that is a perfect term of what we don't want to happen. I mean, you do have to kind of keep time will kill a deal, too. And so you kind of have yeah. to keep things moving and, and you and you want to do that. But I think being diligent and being thoughtful kind of on the front end and kind of really kind of being slow and steady so you can kind of cover all your bases so that towards the end, you know, you, you've done your homework and you know where you're going. Make it a smooth transition um, for, for you um, and for us and for the seller, or for the other side, if you're a seller listening. And so I hopefully you've gained some of that knowledge today. Bridget, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been so fun. I know. Seeing your face and in the podcast, it's just opening all all (laughs) new doors today. Thank you for joining us, team. That's all we have for today. Thanks for joining us on episode 93 of Transition Talk. As always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Till next time.